Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Westside Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. sometimes to keep on going in the face of everything hello my name is tyler bell and i'm the voice the words and the sounds behind the west side fairy tales today's story concerns a handful of autumn days in the quiet loneliness of staple brick holler where the newly widowed edith harlow awakens to find the life she'd built with her husband may not survive his death She's paid a midnight visit by the odd-smelling Mr. Bags, who has his own designs on Staple Brick Holler and makes a threatening offer Edith might not be able to refuse. But we'll find out all about that soon enough. First, I'd like to take a few seconds to thank you all for five years of the West Side Fairy Tales. I launched the first episode of this podcast in December of 2016, shortly after losing the last journalism job I'd ever waste my time with. My only goal at the time was to get somebody, anybody, to listen to my stories. I've grown a lot as a producer since those first episodes, and now we're adding sound and effects and music, and I really can't tell you all how much I appreciate you for giving me the patience and support to grow as an artist. As we move permanently into new phases of the West Side Fairy Tales, I hope the direction and feel of the episodes, the stories, and the entire experience really resonates with you guys all the more. With that... Happy Holidays and Happy New Year. Here's to five more years of stories, if you'll have me. And now, 
without further ado, today's story, The Tortures of Edith Harlow. Three nights after his death, she woke with a start, feeling for the missing warmness of him in the sheets and finding nothing but the cool and empty bed. A rainless storm raged outside, wind tearing down the throat of Staple Brick Holler and pelting her home with what it ripped from the trees. This squall rose and fell like the tides, revealing some uglier sound amongst all the roaring and the hailstorm panic of branches and pebbles and seed pods slapping the shingles. Laughing, crying, praying, perhaps, from a low, dry throat. Edith Harlow was content to let whatever it was burn itself out along with the storm. Let God make splinters of her home if he must. What purpose it once had was now diminished, altered, annihilated by Ben's passing. The sound beneath the windstorm grew up like an anthill through the din and then she could hear it squarely. A man's voice, or something like it, asking after the man of the house. Another rising squall drowned it out and this was followed shortly by a great, splintering crash that forced Edith out of bed and into the closet. She emerged a second later, Ben's shotgun dangling from her elbow clear down to the floor as she loaded it. Ben had been large enough to hold the gun one-handed, shining a lantern off into the woods to catch the eye shine of wolves in the darkness. Edith had watched the wavering sphere of orange casting long shadows through the trees many times in her life. In summer, when the predators would test their fences and make off with chickens. In winter, when Ben would shine up the eye lights of deer just the same and the old scatter gun would belch fire and shake snow from every branch. Now that great light had faded forever, and it was Edith alone with too large a gun for maybe anyone to carry. The squalls died as she opened the top half of her front door and leveled the shotgun's barrels using the bottom half for support. It didn't take much to find the midnight caller. He stood in darkness just past the ridge of her awning. He was tall enough it seemed he might have been looking right in their bedroom window on the second floor when she woke with a voice like winter wind blowing down a choked-out chimney. He spoke. Hello, Miss Harlow, he said, tipping his head or a hat or something like it. Occluded moonlight and stub of candle were all Edith had to see by, and what she was seeing was a great pile of rags shaped up like a man. If there were arms, legs, she couldn't make them out of the pile. What are you out here for? causing a ruckus midst all this storming. Edith snapped back, and it's Mrs. Harlow when you speak to me. My apologies, he said. I was hoping the man of the house was available, but it seems he's died before I could arrive. Edith bit her lip and glared. The ragged mass of the man flowed down like a great, gray candle, leaving the rest of him or his clothing or whatever, in a broad bridal train before him. A fleshy hand burst from the mess and stopped just shy of the light and the door and Edith's shotgun. My name is Mr. Baggs. I ain't shaking your hand, Edith said, rocking down the hammers on Ben's old shotgun. 
And I'd be thanking you to be taking yourself off mine. My land, sir. And in a hurry. Storm's on tonight and I'm not receiving company. The hand curled into a fist and cracked along every knuckle before slipping back up into the rags. The whole exercise left a musty smell over the porch. It's dangerous out here for an old widow alone with all this weather, Mr. Bag said. Rags flipped and twisted and Edith found herself looking at the bowling pin silhouettes of several stubby men all standing together. They nodded to each other as the foremost spoke. City living, that's the ticket. That's the ticket. Electricity. Running water. How could you live without it? Folks to cook your food for you. The little pinheads around him all repeated his talking points and then turned, nodding to Edith. We're in the market for land. Well, this holler is just a little bit of what we need. Running water, Edith said in a cold voice. Our water runs, and you better too if you know it's good for you. Mr. Bags and his little cadre slipped together. The squalls that had woken Edith blew hard again, through the front door this time, and her stub of a candle went dark. The moon went dark as well, and she could hear, could feel, wet, scratching bits of cloth battering her house, her arms, her face. She pulled the trigger on the first barrel and filled the porch with a powder burst that shone over shapes both fully familiar and flatly alien. The clapboard sheathing that ran along the underside of the front porch awning. A great, swirling blackness that shone with wetness and stank like river mud. The open door glowing like a great, white picture frame around a dozen ragged steel zippers shining like teeth. Edith shot again and stumbled back into her kitchen dragging the shotgun along with her. Outside, the squall rose in a terrible fury and then was gone. Pre-dawn light filled her kitchen as she ripped the last traces of her visitor, a reeking black square of fuzzy cloth, off her face and tossed it out the front door after him. Edith cleaned her kitchen of the foulness the man had left behind, scraps of cloth of various size and cut, all befouled by something gritty, Black and wet. She considered burying them in the scrap heap at the back of the property, but decided instead to just head outside and burn them. Having wrapped the offensive rags in an old sheet, she made for the yard. Her heart nearly stopped in her chest when she saw what the squalling winds had made of the home she'd built with Ben. The garden lay in ruins, fence destroyed and nearly every plant bent, broken, or trampled. Her hens had been similarly disabused. The lot of them were loosened either pecking at the remnants of the garden or worrying about a bloody patch of grass where one of their sisters had likely been carried off. Edith cursed to herself and kicked a few stones into a circle. Then she made a pyre of the old garden fence and set the rags ablaze. They curled and hissed for a long while before catching flame, and when they did so, she had to jump back to keep her eyelashes from getting singed. The fire rose higher than her house and died quite suddenly. Every bit of rag and wood rendered into the same immutable ash. 
Lord, Edith said, looking from her fire pit to the remnants of the fence. She thought of the summer ten years gone when she and Ben had built the thing together, her cutting and painting the uprights while Ben beat posts into the ground and then nailed everything together. It was enough to make her clutch her chest and lean over his old shotgun, which she'd failed to reload but had dragged along anyway. She sniffed, sighed, and went inside to find Boots. By noon, Edith had managed to gather up most of the garden. She worked in silence, as she always did, though it was much more quiet without Ben's cursing. The man had a sailor's mouth for the slightest inconvenience, though they never cursed at each other. The quiet hurt, more than she'd ever expected, but she soldiered on, gathering lastly the tomatoes from rows of two dozen each at the end of her plots. Those plants were broken to the number, though, It seemed more than just wind had done this damage. Hmm, was all Edith said to herself when she found the tracks beneath a chewed-up stalk. They led into the woods, which seemed much darker than usual. The old woman nibbled her lip, considered her shotgun, and then went to grab a lantern from the house. Mid-afternoon sunlight cut the forest dark about as well as a butter knife cuts a walnut shell which is to say, really, not at all. What lived in the trees and burrows and ruts lay in a hush all around her. High, high overhead, Edith could still hear something like the noise of the storms from the night previous, though slower and muted. Patient, almost. A worrisome thing, but Edith only had a mind for the tracks. One thing at a time, dear. She mumbled under her breath. It was what she would be telling Ben if he were there with her now. He would be complaining and breathing angrily, making all sorts of promises about tomato thieves. Edith sighed. Lord, she missed that ape of a man. Even so that her reverie almost made her walk right past the little beastie that had robbed her damaged garden. It was a slight, clumsy adjustment on an overhead branch that caught her attention. She whipped the shotgun up at his face, the momentum of the action enough to almost keep her spinning around onto her backside. Ah! He screamed, black eyes wide and a tomato skin dangling from his thumb. Found you, Edith shouted, and the little possum's eyes rolled back in his head. He twirled gracelessly off the branch, caught on his own tail, and then plopped into a pile of leaves at the base of the tree. Edith followed him down with the shotgun standing for a long while with both barrels pointed at him before she got bored with a charade. He just lay there with his tongue lolling out, dripping spittle and tomato seeds onto the leaves. Get up, you. He stayed motionless for a long time before letting his eyes roll up to Edith. She caught him looking and he died all over again, this time letting out a long, ugly gurgle. Edith rolled her eyes and poked him in the belly hard enough to make him burp. Don't make me say it again, she said. Please don't shoot me, he finally whispered. I didn't mean to do anything. Stole my tomatoes, Edith said. Killed one of my hens, 
The possum sat straight up and gave her an indignant look. I would never, he said. Anyway, that was... He froze, looking off into the woods. That was... The possum swayed in a big circle and flopped onto his back once more. Edith poked him. Stop that, she said, setting her gun aside. I'm sorry, the possum said, sitting up and leaning back against the tree. He kept a cautious eye on the shotgun, but seemed relaxed enough. Or groggy, more like. It's a habit of mine. Course, Edith said. Who are you about to say killed my hen? The possum folded his fingers together and looked off into the woods. Who else steals chickens? He mumbled. Edith could tell that was about all she'd get out of him inside, following his eyes into the darkness. Where they stood seemed close enough to daylight, though it fell off a great deal just past the first few trees. Edith thought she could see somebody out there between the trees for a second. An odd, human shape, though not the gathering of foul cloth that had woken her in the night. Was it a ragman? She asked the possum. He gave her a confused look. Called himself Mr. Bags. Smells like river muck. The possum nodded. I know that smell, he said, looking down at the leaves. He scattered them with his hands and found a tick crawling on the tree branch. He plopped it into his mouth. It was in the air next holler over, and we caught it salt lick because of the waterfall. I know it, Edith said. We call it wet top. What happened? We got sick and I had to leave, the possum said. Ah, I got separated and, well, I smelled your garden after the storm. All those vegetables were just going to rot. He gave Edith a pleading look. It would have been wrong to just leave them there. Edith snorted and looked back in the direction of her house, thinking of the ruined garden. Something heavy moved in the depths of the forest and a tree fell. The noise was long and deep. She tapped the possum with her foot and told him to come along with her. He gave the big noise one look, took a breath, and did just that. What even is a can? The possum asked, sitting at the little workstation Edith had set up for him beside the garden. Edith had explained all this already, but the little guy insisted on asking every question twice. She repeated herself, pointing to the skillet and then to the cans and then the boiler and explaining it all one more time. He sighed and tapped the side of the skillet with the metal spatula she'd provided. And I can eat here whenever I want if I do this. I ain't none of us gonna eat here if you don't do this, but yeah, that's the deal. Edith said. Of course, you can always live on ticks if you want. I like ticks, the possum mumbled turning the skillet and plopping in some of the tomatoes he'd washed. They sputtered and blackened, and then he'd dropped them in the can. Edith found herself smiling warmly at the possum, remembering how Ben would also complain once relegated to certain duties in the kitchen. Anything that wasn't sweat and glory to him was absolute tedium, though she'd never seen him eat ticks. Why are you looking at me like that? The possum said in a glum voice. I ain't that funny. Yes, you are, Edith said. You're a possum at a skillet. Lord, 
You're hilarious. Neither of them laughed, but Edith felt herself smiling again. How about I call you something? You know what? I'll call you Frank. I had a sister dated a boy up holler named Frank. He liked to steal cans of condensed milk from my mom. I don't want to be called Frank, the possum said, giving her an indignant look. She crossed her arms and swept a hand in front of her. Would you like to be called? She asked. He gave her a look and then turned to stare deeply into the frying pan. Then he looked up at the words and turned to her again. Frank, I think, he said, nodding. But only if it's my idea. Then I'll be Frank. You'd better be, as long as you're talking to me, Edith said. And then she was laughing again. By late afternoon, Frank had canned all the vegetables he could and stacked them down in the larder. As a reward, Edith opened a can of condensed milk for him and he lived up to his namesake, nearly making himself sick trying to drink the whole thing once he'd had a taste for it. She set the remainder aside to make something with, though she didn't have the energy at the moment. Her job had been mending the chicken wire and trying to get the hens back in their coop, the latter of which she'd failed at miserably. You're not very fast, Frank had said. Faster than you, Edith had snapped back. The possum had only shrugged and gone back to his work at the skillet. With night coming, it was apparent she needed a fix or by morning she'd have chickens dead or lost all over Staple Brick Holler. The guy that stole your chicken this morning could catch all of them faster than you could count them, Frank had said. Remembering that conversation now, Edith took the condensed milk back out and set it between them. Who was it stole my hens again? She asked, tapping the top of the can. Frank looked at it and licked his lips. She scooted it a touch closer, and then back again when he reached for it. Oh, it was the wolf, he said. She pulled it fully out of his reach. What wolf? She asked. He gave her a direct look. The wolf, he said. He lives here in Crackscatter. Long before I got here, too. Crackscatter? Edith asked. Is that what you all call staple brick? The possum shrugged and reached for the can again. Edith pushed it where he could touch it, but didn't let go. Where can I find him? He didn't leave a bunch of tracks like you did. It's not my fault my belly drags on the ground, Frank mumbled. I got short legs. He sighed and looked at the condensed milk. He's in a cave near the base of the holler, I think. That's where it smells most like him, at least. I had to come in through that way when I left Salt Lake. Edith pushed the can to Frank and shook her head when he tried downing it in a single gulp. Then she took her shotgun outside. It wasn't really Ben's anymore. And used a hacksaw to cut the barrels away just past the stock. You shouldn't go in there, Frank called after Edith. He stood where his little workstation had been, though it was now all cleaned up and disassembled. His little hands worked at each other nervously. It's, it's getting dark. You want to come? Play lookout? Edith asked. He shook his head and stepped back toward the house. Edith turned to him and pointed to her home. 
You just sit there and wait if you want to, okay? I'll be back soon enough. In your nest? Frank asked, looking back at the house. Yeah, she said. But you stay out of that condensed milk, you understand? He nodded slowly while still looking at her house. When he turned back to her, Edith was little more than a light bobbing away into the forest. Edith walked to the base of the holler, her every step disturbing the leaves gathered on the dirt path leading down to the main road. She'd ridden down this way just once in the last year, holding Ben's hand all the way while he lay sweating and pale on the ambulance gurney. It was hard not to think of him, despite the wind rising around her. The squalls had swept down from the sky, a steady pressure building overhead with every step. It was then she saw it, a great befoulment in the river at the throat of her hauler. From her vantage, still a good hundred feet up, the water should have been broad and brown and sparkling at this time of day. What she saw was a stifled lake of sludge that had left dingy tidal marks when it had surged in the night. Squalls kicked up along the surface of the massive black pool and rushed hot through the trees. Along with them flew tattered scraps of cloth that clung to, darkened, and rotted the riverside branches. Whispers in the forest returned Edith's attentions to the work at hand. Something nearby had silenced the few birds clinging to the periphery of the holler. The land and trees lay much lower here than where Edith had found Frank, and the natural stone of the holler walls made an excellent windbreak. Edith raised her lantern and the shotgun, causing as much cautionary silence as her approaching guest. I know you, he said before she saw him. Pain harshened his voice, but he spoke confidently enough. The crunch of leaves here, there... Beside and ahead of her gave Edith only the slightest hint of where he might be. You're fast. I'll give you that, Edith said, shouting into the dark. It seemed to thicken wherever she looked, pulling the forest shut to her eyes like curtains over a window. Not as fast as you, crack-scatter woman, he replied. Sullen eyes appeared on a rock above her, yellow and hate-narrowed. You don't need to run to eat, nor does your crack-scatter man. We all know you. His head lowered, and she could see the teeth there beneath the eyes, the full length of his snout, the gray mane behind it all. You ate my chickens, didn't you? Edith asked. She adjusted the scatter gun toward the wolf, but kept it pointed low. He growled. You killed my pack. He screamed, leaping at her. In the long jump from the top of the rock, Edith thought about her Ben walking the woods in the dark and the long, wailing howls that followed every crack of this old gun. The darkness thickened as if to hide the wolf in the moment before he struck, to obscure the target Edith might fire at. Instead of doing so, however, she stumbled aside and out of the wolf's way, wincing at how he screamed when he landed. Edith turned to see the wolf laying on his side, proud fur mud-fouled and his jaws and eyes half-open through every pained breath. Almost no fur at all remained on his right forepaw, 
and even some of the flesh was gone. What are you waiting for? He asked. You won't let me die with pride. Now you won't let me die at all. The wolf did not look at Edith as he spoke. She approached him, shotgun leveled such as the slightest weight of a finger would end the life of this wolf. He forced himself to meet her eyes until he saw the sadness in them. My husband killed your pack? She asked. The wolf curled its hurt leg against its chest. Some of them, he said. Enough we had to leave crack scatter. Nowhere else would have us either. He looked into the forest. The dark seemed to have receded. It waited now behind the closest trees, like a child looking after its friend. Edith set down her lantern and knelt beside the animal. What happened to your leg? She asked. He took a breath. The bagman lied to me, was all he would say. Edith took the scarf from her hair and pulled the wolf's paw to her. He growled, but offered little resistance. This close to him, it was readily apparent the young wolf had been hungry a long while before his injury. He looked at the scarf and then laid his head back against the cold earth. Do you want to lay out here and die? Edith asked. The wolf snorted. If you come back home with me, I'll give you a warm place to rest. At least until you're feeling better. The wolf said nothing. And if you do some work for me, I'll give you a chicken every week and eggs to eat every day. His ears perked up despite himself. I'm not going to shoot you in any case, Edith said, pushing herself to her feet with a grunt. Now, if you want to lay there and be proud while you're thinking it over, you go on ahead and do that, but I'm heading home. Edith took maybe 20 steps before she heard the wolf's sullen footsteps fall in behind her. Now, Frank, that's enough of that, Edith said, walking up the path to the house. The possum had fainted at the first sight of the wolf though he had neglected to drop the mostly empty can of condensed milk in his hand. And that better be the same can. It is, he protested, coming awake just long enough to see the wolf's big, yellow eyes looking down at him from inches away. Frank passed out for real then, his little body shuddering and then slumping unconscious. The wolf chuckled. If you need me to eat possums, I could start now he said in a dark voice. Edith gave him a hard look and pointed. No eating anything in this hauler without permission first, she said. I got enough trouble already without one raiding my stores. She pointed to Frank just as the possum was coming too, and this time he scrambled to his feet and ran toward the house. The wolf watched him with a bemused expression. You're god-awful slow. The wolf half-shouted after Frank. The possum turned, glared, and wiggled his fingers at the beast. And you smell like a wolf, he retorted. The wolf raised his hackles and gave a nasty growl that slowly subsumed into equally nasty chuckling as the possum ran for the house. Edith gave him a look and pointed at him. 
which made the wolf roll his eyes. You hungry, wolf? She asked. His expression turned sarcastic. All right, all right. You catch me them chickens and get them in the coop and I'll cook up an omelet for you. How's that? The wolf looked at her blankly. Omelets are good. I'll put cheese in it. When his expression didn't change, she rolled her eyes. Just get to it and don't eat any of them, okay? They both looked at each other for a long moment, sighed in unison, and headed off to their respective tasks. Edith emerged with a fat, six-egg omelet laden with pulled chicken and goat cheese just as the wolf had collected the last of her chickens from the woods. The poor thing hung limp from his jaws, alive and terrified as all the others when he deposited it beside the coop. Edith sighed when she counted her traumatized chickens and set the wolf's plate down on a stump beside the garden. He gave her cooking a suspicious look and dug in, his tail wagging like a dog's by the time he finished. Good lord, Edith said with a laugh. You enjoying that? The wolf seemed hung up on whether to reply sarcastically. Yes, he finally said in a small voice. Thank you. Well, thank you too, Edith said. The squalls had grown worrisome overhead, but daylight still lingered. And it has been a long day, she thought to herself. You're pleased with yourself, the wolf said, voice somewhat sullen. Without thinking, Edith reached out and scratched the top of his head. I was thinking of something, she said. To her surprise, the wolf tilted his cheek up into the scratch and seemed to enjoy it. Probably it had been a long time since he'd had contact with something he wasn't trying to eat. Or that wasn't trying to eat him. Despite herself, Edith thought of Ben's lantern light in the woods and the screams of dying wolves. She retracted her hand, possibly a touch too quickly, and looked at it. She'd urged Ben to go out there and protect the animals. The thoroughness of his work was something she'd never considered. What's your name? Edith asked. The wolf looked at her. What'd your pack call you? He gave it some thought and then gave a short, yipping howl. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I can pronounce that. The wolf laughed. No, probably not. He said. It means the same thing as the sound of brook trout jumping upstream. I don't think you have anything like that. The wolf seemed sad, thinking of his true name and those who could never again call him by it. Well, how about Brooke? Edith asked. The wolf gave her a flat look. A human name? He asked. I'm not a dog. That's fine. Neither am I. Edith replied. The sky had darkened overhead. She stood and looked around. I could tear your throat out in your sleep, the wolf said. Yeah, I reckon, Edith replied. The squalls had descended fully, and she watched as they ripped shingles piecemeal from her roof. God damn it. The shingles fluttering in the air began to hook and swirl madly in one spot above her house. Then they were all fluttering loose, and the entire house seemed to twist about itself settling with a massive pop as every bit of black on the roof burst into the air. Brooke is fine, the wolf said, 
stepping around Edith. The air smells like frog water. We need to hide. Yep, Edith replied, and they both ran for the house, the wolf outpacing her by a sight despite the noticeable limp. Edith watched the shingles gather and swell and glisten with rotten wetness overhead. Then they smashed into the ground between her and the house. The darkness rushed out of the woods to make a bowl that covered her home and most of the garden. She could barely see now, just the barest shapes of the raggedy man pulling himself together in the dark. Have we had a second to think about our offer? He said. Mr. Baggs was a man in shadow, whose legs disappeared into an amorphous mass on the ground and swelled behind him like a great big snail shell. Edith cursed at him in plain enough language little else need be said, and she hurled the tin plate brook had eaten off at the man's face. It seared the dark, cutting through like a lance of hot fire to tear into Mr. Bag's cheekbone. He had no eyes, no mouth, just the shapes and shadows one might call cheeks or eye sockets. In one of these, a large steel zipper opened and bit down into the plate. The shape of a head turned and spat crumpled balls of scrap metal onto the ground. A fine enough answer, he said, shifting his body at Edith like a slug. With little in the way of options, she tried to juke and run around him. Old as she was, this was more a mockery of sport itself than an effective escape. Thankfully, Mr. Baggs was possessed of enough cruel vanity he allowed this display simply for his own amusement chuckling at Edith as she stumbled toward her house. Something burped up from the ground just as she reached her porch, however, and wrapped a stinging, oily wetness around her ankle. The pain was slight, and then immediate, intense, and Edith howled as she was dragged over the loose dirt path beside the garden. Properties not sold outright are easy enough to bid on at auction, Mr. Bag said in a flat voice. Bidding is inconvenient, however, and I would like to offer you a chance to sell one last time. At a diminished price, of course. You are making my work here difficult. Edith cursed him again, and he all but broke her ankle in response. Then his raggedy body was opening over top her, zippers coming unzipped and rows of sharp steel teeth bearing themselves to tear into her body. Mr. Baggs yelped then, not in pain, but the way someone might shout if a spider falls on their shoulder. And this new distraction loosened his grip on Edith. She sat up and kicked his oily rags off her leg, seeing Brooke beside her trying to gag up one of Mr. Baggs he'd bitten into. Their eyes met, and Brooke darted toward Edith, nuzzling under her chest and hefting her onto his back to drag her to the door. Disgusting, Mr. Baggs said. Absolutely filthy. Come here, you. Edith turned to see a hand the size of a barn door getting ready to close on them. Filthy, scratching rags twisted and flipped and fluttered like eels. She might have been sick if it had been a convenient moment. Possum? Brooke half screamed. Get down! Frank yelled and Edith turned to find the little possum standing on her porch in a tidy blue suit. It was Ben's childhood church clothes, which she'd stored in a trunk in the attic going on 20 years now and hadn't seen since. Another time, she would have reprimanded the possum, 
But just then, he was holding up her sawed-off shotgun with his whole body, stock resting on the porch and his whippy little tail wrapped around the trigger. Brooke hit the ground just as both barrels fired, launching Frank off his feet and three feet back onto the transom. Mr. Baggs screamed, and Brooke and Edith dragged themselves into the house, Brooke grabbing the unconscious Frank and pulling him back into the kitchen. Edith slammed the door, slapped the deadbolt home, and looked outside. Mr. Baggs had gone, and his squalls along with him. Shingles and scraps of wood lay strewn throughout the yard, but much of it was what he'd already broken that morning, kicked up again by the mounting winds. The only unexpected thing out here was a young, dark girl in a tattered dress, looking up at the sky in astonishment. Her eyes, pure, white, and empty, turned down to Edith and then widened in surprise. Then she vanished into the pool of shadow beneath her bare feet, and all the darkness in the holler shrank back into the trees. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Frank woke to Edith and Brooke standing over him. Edith with her arms crossed and Brooke wearing an unplaceable smile. He set the shotgun aside as carefully as he could. The thing was perilously heavy for a possum and wiggled his fingers together in front of his belly. And where? Edith started. But Frank couldn't help himself but blurt out everything. You were gone for a while and I got bored and you said I couldn't have condensed milk with your nest is so big and I wanted to find a good place to sleep and I went upstairs and found a box that had paper stuff inside and I put some of it on pretending to be like people for a bit and I heard yelling and I got excited and I picked up your thing and my body come help out. He all but shouted. Edith kept glaring at him. I didn't mean to cause any upset. He looked back and forth from Edith to Brooke. Promise. You flew like a bird. Brooke managed between breaths. And then you slid like a fish on a rock. Edith scratched behind Brooke's ears and the wolf rolled over on his side, letting her get his flank while he kept on laughing. I can't believe you fit those clothes, she said. If my... if... well... Anybody who saw you dress like that would have an absolute fit, Frank. The possum looked down at the vest and wiggled his feet. The ancient brown loafers tapped gently against the floor. I think I look fine in these, he said. I think you look like a furry little rum runner, Edith said. And though none of them knew what she meant by that except her, the sound was funny enough they all broke into more laughter. Edith woke the next morning in a bed nearly too hot for human habitation. 
Brooke lay flopped across Ben's side of the bed, where he'd climbed in shortly before dawn after finishing one of the maybe dozen patrols he'd done through the night. Frank was similarly sprawled out across the top of her pillow, where he'd dropped at some point after falling asleep atop the headboard. She'd decided to oblige her slightly fetid possum hat for that night only, given she was far too tired to toss him onto the floor. She left those two sleeping, giving them a long look and sighing before heading down to the kitchen. When her yard wasn't being ripped apart stem to stern in the middle of the night, mornings started with coffee and a bit of sweet bread to keep her blood sugar up while she did the morning chores. Ben would always rise just after her, tromping downstairs and scratching up her cheek with a kiss before going and getting himself a cup of coffee. Edith sat in the quiet for a long, long moment, back straight and her cheek slightly raised. She kept her eyes clenched tight, tighter, waiting, waiting, ignoring the single tear that fell down onto her chin and then sniffing and laughing at herself and going to the window. It was dark outside, but only the cloudy sort of dark that precedes a rainstorm. She could see all of what she'd built with that man, and for the first time in her life it hurt her badly, like a knife down into her heart. She looked at the chickens, mindless and curious and less afraid with Brooke in the house. Her garden, half broke and half fixed, was a confit mix of hope and despair. She wanted him here. She closed her eyes and held the cup against her chest, over her broken heart. God damn it. She said, God damn it. Time passed as it does and the sun rose a little more, fought the clouds a bit and brushed its long, delicate fingers over the earth. It touched Edith on her neck and her clasped hands, on her face when she leaned closer to the window. It shone on tears and wrinkled hands and the work of a lifetime. She sipped her coffee and washed her face in the sink. When she was done... She looked up and saw those perfect white eyes again, glowing like the shapes between the tree shadows in the woods. Maybe that's all they were. The spaces between leaves and branches. But she was sure that wasn't it. Then the eyes caught Edith watching, and the darkness in the woods seemed to dance back some. Brooke watched the chickens and the chickens watched him, only the furthest daring to flutter their wings and scratch the dirt. Duly distracted, they paid no mind at all to Frank as he bumbled in and out of the hen house with the hay-lined egg pails Edith had given him. Edith herself stood with her thumb on her chin, lost in her thoughts. Have you ever seen a girl in the woods? She finally asked aloud. There's lots of girls in the woods. Frank said with a little hitch in his step. Do you mean a human girl? A female child? Brooke asked. His eyes never left the chickens. Yeah, Edith said. Sort of. No, Brooke said. You're the only human for miles. He glanced at her quickly, just once. The only one I can smell, at least. How about... Edith said. Something else. Like? 
Frank asked. There's all sorts of things in the woods, you know. Like, everything is in the woods. Except you people, basically. His voice echoed out the coop. What about a, a dark thing? Edith said, with wide eyes. Frank stopped on the coop's little ramp and actually exchanged a look with Brooke. The wolf turned to the woods and then to Edith. Deprived of his gaze, the chickens started marching around, flipping their wings open and clucking at each other. That thing, he said. It. She. Is always here. Was always here. Who or what is she? Edith asked. The animals remained quiet for a long time. The dark, Frank finally answered. So it was that Edith walked into the woods an hour later with a burlap bag, her shotgun, and her lantern. Partially because of just how dangerous it was, but more because they didn't even know what she might accomplish. She's just that, the dark, Frank had tried to explain. She looks however she wants to look, though mostly you just don't see her. Brooke had gotten quiet after the first mention of her, the dark, as they called the creature. I'd seen her once in my life, though it's a bad memory, he'd said. Edith hadn't pushed him, but he'd seemed to want to talk about it himself. It was a few winters ago when your man came up into the woods with us. Edith had remained silent while Brooke tried to think up the appropriate words. I was hiding. He'd said. The... Your man had gotten most of us and I was alone. He tracked me. And when he was going to shine his light on me, she intervened. The wolf took a shaking breath. It was like a river of shadow, strong as a waterfall and no thicker than my whiskers. It hid me, and I lived. Edith didn't know if she'd find this dark, or if it was even possible to. She merely began walking in the direction she'd last seen the girl shape, on the path that led out of the holler. Something grabbed her leg and Edith had to drop the shotgun to keep from falling. The gun disappeared without a sound, and she slapped the earth where she thought it had landed to no avail. Something passed her, and Edith watched as her lantern died. You won't need that here, woman, a voice said. It was deep and feminine, ringing in the trees around her. A smell of night earth, cool stone and water vapor passed before her. Edith stood and faced a direction that made sense. I'd like to talk, if you have a moment, she said. Limbs and leaves rustled above her, around her. She felt the sliding bodies of snakes about her ankles and the creep of many-legged things over the back of her neck. It bothered her a great deal, no lie, but she bore the sunless delusion and eventually sighed when it didn't relent. Come on now. Don't be childish about this. Childish? The voice thrummed through the earth beneath her feet, through the stone and down into the dark and echoing hollows lacing the mountain. Great white eyes opened in the forest before her, 
holes which allowed the sun to shine through into Edith's own eyes. She blinked and turned her head. Lord, she muttered. Ain't no call for that. The eyes narrowed in a glare, but also provided Edith with enough light by which to find a seat. Oh, there we go. I'm too old for all this walking and standing. She set the burlap bag between her feet and fetched up a spoon and a jar of Frank's tomatoes. You hungry? This here's stewed tomatoes. I'll share. Edith popped the jar inside at the smell. Frank had made little mistakes here and there, but mostly he'd gone about the whole thing according to recipe. It was Ben's recipe, based on what he liked and then prepared by Edith. Salt and a touch of pepper and plenty of oregano and parsley. Lord, I could eat that all day, Ben's voice said in the back of her head. Edith found she had to sniff back a tear. She was in over her head without him, wasn't she? Maybe. Even so, she took the spoon she'd brought along and sampled the broth. It was fine, fine stew. A little warm even still from canning the day before. One night in the cellar hadn't stolen its heat. Why aren't you running away? The voice asked. Still feminine, but now light and soft. It had a feeling to it of mugginess and moonlight. A throat full of late July. Edith looked up to see the girl from the edge of the woods. Her face, her body, everything about her was just a suggestion. Not like Mr. Baggs, who seemed authentically shapeless, like a wad of pond scum. But rather like the one imagines any shape morphing out of the darkness. Just as hat racks are made into men at midnight and odd rocks and bushes become goblins and bugbears. She was nothing more than a vivid hallucination. A trick of the light. Too old to run. Though you did scare me plenty, Edith admitted, helping herself to a whole tomato. It was delicious. Should I be scared? The dark crossed its arms and huffed, giving Edith an affronted look. Yes, she said. Everybody is afraid of the dark. You mean you? Edith asked. I don't think so. The dark rolled her eyes and took a seat on the idea of a stool in front of Edith. Flowers and mushrooms rose up around her feet. She kicked at them with her toes and then gave a bored look to the forest darkness around them. The day brightened and the forest resumed its normal shadows. Edith saw her lantern and shotgun sitting on the ground a few yards away. The dark caught her looking. I wouldn't do that if I were you, she said, crossing her arms. I'm quite dangerous. I'm sure, Edith said. The girl seemed fully corporeal now, a thin-limbed youth of maybe twelve. Her dress was torn and hung off her right shoulder. Edith offered her the tomatoes and the dark Dane to look down at them. Would you like some? The dark considered for just a moment and then snatched the spoon and jar from Edith's hand, eating greedily. Her entire body shuddered when she finished, tossing the jar behind her like so much trash. A fitting offering, the dark said, wiping her mouth. She stood and stretched and made to start walking away into the woods. As she did so, the light seemed to dance along with her steps. Edith stood and pounded her fist into her hand. Hey, wait a second, she said. 
The dark flashed her eyes back at Edith, who pulled a second jar out of the burlap. The dark's eyes widened and then shifted quickly away from Edith. I don't want any more, she said, lying. Edith almost laughed. Fine by me, she said. I got about 200 cans of these and nobody to eat them all. The dark put her hands on her hips and leaned forward, clearly offended. That's not true, she said. Little Frank loves those things. He'll eat every one if you're not careful. Edith raised an eyebrow and the dark whipped her attention away to the trees. She made a sound like clearing her throat and the entire forest seemed to breathe with her. I mean to say... She started, thinking a long time before continuing. You just... You just do whatever the hell you want with your stupid tomatoes. I meant to share them, Edith said. Figured you'd either be interested in that or not. So, as about it. Edith tapped the side of the jar with the other spoon she'd brought, only realizing just then that the dark had outright stolen the first one. The dark turned, pursed the suggestion of her lips, and then popped up beside Edith. She held out her hand and flexed her fingers. How come you look like that? Edith asked. Gimme, the dark said. Answer some questions, and we'll think about it. How's that? Edith asked. The dark huffed and returned to her seat amongst the flowers and mushrooms. First is, why are you messing with me down there? Edith asked. The dark glared at her, clearly upset that Edith didn't know. Because you stole my wolves, the dark said. The shadows in the forest thickened, and every gap in the canopy looked like a narrowed eye. Edith opened her mouth to apologize, but the dark continued. Your stupid people lights and your stupid gun things, I hate them. She glared at Edith. I hate them! The woods were now no less dark than the bleakest cave in the guts of the mountain, but the display faded alongside the dark's temper. And now you have my last wolf living in your house! She pouted. He needs me to take care of him, to show him the moon and keep him from... from people like you! He seems plenty content for now. Edith offered. At least until he gets my chickens, then he'll probably come back to you. The dark curled up and shook her head, looking on the verge of tears. It's too late for that, she whispered. How's that? Edith asked. The dark gave her a long, appraising look and then held out her hand for the tomatoes. Edith sighed and handed them over. The dark disappeared the second the jar was in her hands. Well, hell, Edith said, looking around. She'd thought the dark had gone for good until she saw her a few yards away, sulking behind a tree. Hey, you, why is it too late? The dark looked at her, a guilty spoonful of tomatoes in her mouth. She swallowed. Because the bagman is coming to take everything, she said, flitting away to another tree. Edith hunted for and found her, now laid out along the ground behind a rock. Who is the bagman? Edith asked. The dark rolled onto her back and sipped the juice from the jar, tasting her lips. 
he's like me, she said. He's a lot of things all in one, and sometimes just one of those things, or a few of them, or all of them. The only thing he really ever is, is what he does. The dark finished the tomato juice and rolled over onto her stomach, looking at the empty jar. He does this. She took a handful of leaves and small stones and dropped them into the jar, closing the lid over top them. Then she pressed down on the lid, and the jar vanished inside her palm. Nervous shivers ran up and down Edith's spine. I'm not all of the dark, the dark said. Just a bit of it. And I'm young, compared to the old darknesses that came before the new light. They don't talk to us shadows and shades. They simply are up there. So big the stars rest in their hands and can't shine through. And then there's the true darkness beyond even that, which lays behind everything you can see. The dark gave Edith a serious look. One day I'll lose my eyes, and then there won't be a me anymore, after all that time, the dark said. We all mix with each other as the sun and moon dance around us, growing and splitting back into ourselves, us little darknesses. I'm the shadow of this mountain, and this forest, but only that. Underneath is an old darkness, and he lives in the heart of the stone, sleeping. Mr. Bags wants to wake him up. Why? Edith asked. Because Mr. Bags does that sort of thing, the dark said. He told me, reminded me, that all this, my mountain and my wolves, is fleeting. If people could take the wolves from the dark, what would the old darkness leave me when it came? She scratched the dirt with her finger, making a symbol Edith didn't recognize. He said if it hurt to be without my wolves, then I should just hurry up and get it over with. The forest went black. And why shouldn't I? The dark said. And when the sun returned, Edith saw the living shadow had departed. Not knowing what, if anything, that conversation had accomplished, Edith headed back and collected her shotgun and lantern. Beside her bag lay two jars, one empty, and another stuffed with stones and leaves. Edith stood looking at her home for a long while when she returned to the woods. It seemed to her folks couldn't have anything in this age that wasn't stained here and there with blood even covered with it at times. The house never felt like that. Ben never felt like that. But what she'd learned, maybe known all along, really, cast a damper over everything. A blanket, cold and wet and reeking. It is a nice house, Mr. Bag said. Edith turned and saw a simple man standing in the path to her house. The great mass of stinking rags wasn't there, but it was somewhere nearby. Low breezes from the growing squalls carried that frog mud stink of him through her yard. What stood before her looked like a charcoal sketch of a man, still near featureless and deeply gray in every aspect, 
But what is a house worth, really? You can't have many homes in a life, and this needs not be your last. Miss Harlow. What do you even need all this for? Edith asked. You're causing a lot of misery just to be here, and you ain't even got my house yet. I suppose I haven't, no. He replied. Not yet. The shadows beneath his cap seemed to sneer at her. But it's not like you haven't caused your own share of misery. Hey, Miss Harlow. He took a step to the side and looked at her garden, sliding out of a copy of himself that stood stock still in place, still grinning. How much of these woods did you fell for your garden, for your house? Another lump of him separated and walked to the goat paddock, where Edith's goat, Ramsey, was idly chewing the lump of wood to pieces. The other bits of Mr. Baggs stood still as ever, frozen where the conversation had left off. Animals in cages, waiting for slaughter, for milking, he said. All those wolves left to rot in the forest, nights and days of killing to eat, and killing just to kill. And what have you built with it? A natty little house, and a lonely, pointless little holler in a lonely, pointless little state. Husband dead. No friends, really, to speak of. What value does that have? Edith looked at him and sighed. I don't know, she said. I just want to be left alone. Suppose everything wants that, don't it? But it ain't the way of things. She dropped her bag and leveled the shotgun at him. Now, you can get, or I'll pump two in your belly to start. Miss Harlow, he said, and she shot him like she'd promised. The center, Mr. Bag, stumbled backward, bent in half, and rolled onto the ground. Mrs. Harlow, Edith said, spitting into the dirt between them, like I said before. Mr. Bag swelled along his middle and spread across the ground like oil, rejoining with his frozen doppelgangers at their ankles. They shuddered and collapsed as though they had no structure at all. Edith took a few steps back, watching the bubble that was Mr. Bag's bloating up in the middle. Then a great zipper pushed out of the mass of wet, woolen rags. It shone for a long second in the sun, and then the darkness began to sweep in from the forest. The pull tab of the zipper, fully half the size of Edith's front door, jerked downward suddenly, and a set of thin, spidery fingers pushed out from inside the bag. They were joined by a second set, a third, a fourth, all of which pushed at the tab and the bag until they were free. Edith cracked open the shotgun and pulled out the spent casings, tossing them behind her and rifling in her pocket for more darkness had enveloped her property back to front, leaving only the barest hints of her home to be seen and nothing beyond. Two of the hands grabbed the tab and began pulling down the zipper, which crunched tooth by tooth like a trash compactor. Edith! Brooke shouted, running up beside her. Let's go! I'm finna shoot this fella again, Wolf! Edith said. Brooke nipped her on her heel and she looked at him. His eyes were intense fierce with concern. 
He whimpered and looked back to the assumed safety of the house and then to Edith. Great, pallid eyes and a tongue squelched out of the bag. The tongue alone was longer than her body and thick as her leg. A face followed, snapping and sucking into place around the organs. Shoulders and then a head popped forward on a long, scrawny turtle's neck. Its teeth, jagged, steel zipper teeth, snapped down right where Edith had been standing before Brooke dragged her backward. She dropped the shotgun and the thing took a second to observe the weapon, and then slap it away into the tomatoes. It turned on Edith and she smashed her old kerosene lantern at the base of it, and ran. Frank stood in the doorway, mouth working around something he'd been trying to say but unable to get to, transfixed as he was by the thing Mr. Bags had become. It pulled itself on powerful, if uncooperative, hands, blindly jerking itself left, right, and forward almost as fast as Edith could run. The squalls had kicked up as well, so even if he had wanted to say something, they'd never be able to hear it. They sprinted in past him and the little possum slammed the door shut, leaning against it and looking at them for a second before the door burst back open and threw him across the room. He flopped bonelessly onto the ground and lay there, unmoving. Mr. Baggs halted in the doorway, his eyes rolling in whatever direction they pleased until they settled on Edith. Why are you having possums play dress up? He asked, snatching Frank off the ground and holding him over his mouth. The zipper teeth fluttered and clicked and snapped against each other. Edith opened her mouth to say something. She didn't know what. But Brooke interrupted them both. He snarled and leapt forward almost too fast to see, snatching Frank by the back of his little suit and clawing Mr. Bag's right eye until it ruptured and the thing let the possum go. Mr. Bags howled and Brooke hit the ground running, sprinting toward Edith with Frank dangling from his jaws. Then the wolf howled, and Frank was sliding across Edith's kitchen floor, eyes wide with shock and his little chest fluttering. Mr. Bags had caught Frank by the back leg and reeled him in, cursing and using his many hands to fling the wolf back and forth against the walls, the icebox, and then wholly out the window. In a moment frozen in time, Edith saw Brooke's eyes looking at her. Then his skull hit the window frame with a nasty thunk, and those big, yellow eyes went perfectly blank. Edith screamed at Mr. Baggs, hauled Frank up by his belly, and ran for the stairs. The possum grabbed her arms as she ran, holding on for dear life. Neither of them dared look back at Mr. Baggs as Edith ran. Finally, she ended up in the hallway to her room, where a single window looked out onto the backyard. Risking a few seconds, she opened the window and dumped Frank onto the small bit of rooftop there. She told him to run and slammed the window shut when he tried to refuse. Edith stood in her bedroom, looking down at the bed she'd made with Ben so many times. The frame had lasted years longer than either of them had ever guessed it might, going on 20 at this point. They'd bought it during a going-out-of-business sale at a department store in Blunt, West Virginia, not really loving it, but figuring eventually they'd find one they liked better. Time had proven otherwise. Edith pushed her way into the closet right of the bed and brought down Ben's steel emergency tin from when he worked in the Targrady pits. 
It was a simple box he'd stuck up there years ago, having brought it home on his last day of work after forgetting to turn it in to the foreman. The contents were little more than a few stale road flares and a simple first aid kit. Bandages and the like. Edith took out the flares and pulled their caps as Mr. Bag began breaking down her door. There was no rhythm to the action. Just the absolute size of him seemed enough to buckle the wall between the bedroom and the hall. The plaster split, pouring streamers of dust onto the carpet. The door splintered, cracked, and popped open. Seemingly unsatisfied with that, or possibly just unable to use the door, Mr. Baggs kept pressing. The door frame gave next, followed by great slabs of wall plaster and finally the bones of the walls themselves. His eyes, the leftmost ruined and weeping a foul blackness onto her carpet, rolled into the room first, followed by the rest of him. Edith kept her chin up, bottom lip out and eyes narrowed. Whatever this man was, he wasn't about to see her shake in her own room. What do you have there? Mr. Baggs asked. Never you mind that, she replied. If you want to find out, you come and see. You can't hurt me, Mr. Baggs said, zipper mouth splitting to allow a broad grin. Lies, but they don't matter, Edith said. They looked at each other a long time. Ain't you gonna try to convince me of something? Filthy rags provided the thing's eyes with enough lids for it to look sardonic. Fine enough by me, then. Edith struck the flares and the eyes widened. Mr. Baggs noticed just then the predicament of the tight hallway. Your house, he said sternly. You'll destroy your house. It ain't about the house, Edith said, sniffing back tears she didn't know she was crying. It wasn't ever about the goddamn house. Mr. Baggs tried to sludge his way back down to the hall, but Edith caught up to him casually, burying her hand in the corner of his mouth up to her elbow. He sputtered, coughed, and burst into flame. Edith felt suddenly like she was flying, and everything went dark. Ben sat at the edge of the bed, boots on and hands clasped in his lap, thinking over the list of things he had to do that day. Ben wiped his forehead and squinted up at the sun, picking up another fence post and beating it into the soft earth. Ben took another sip of coffee and cracked the Charleston Independent, skipping all the way back to the sports page. Ben, she said. Beneath her and above her was darkness. He looked back at her from a ways away, not quite seeing her, looking at something else, quiet, unmoving. Ben, please, you have to talk to me, baby. He said nothing, though he seemed smaller, darker, more distant. Ben, God damn it, you can't leave me here alone. But he did. He did. Edith woke to a possum slapping her on the back of the head. She tried to push him away, but he persisted, 
saying something about her hair being on fire. Then the possum was dumping dirt on her and she sputtered awake, slapping her hands around side to side. Edith, Frank said, grabbing her arm. Oh my gosh, you flew out the house. She felt like that might be the case, given the trouble she was going through trying to stand. Where's Brooke? She asked. Frank just shook his head. Oh, good lord. Edith watched the second floor of her home collapse into the first. The entirety of the roof had caved in while she was out cold. The fire had spread throughout the entire structure in mere seconds, it seemed, and there was no way to stop it. Thankfully, they'd cleared enough of the woods away the only other thing that might catch was the storage barn behind the house, which, given the other bit of smoke she was seeing, was likely already the case. The house is gone, God damn it. Edith said. She pulled up her knees and buried her face in them. God damn it. Edith? Frank said, shaking her shoulder. She pushed him away, but he persisted. Edith? Edith? What? She started to ask, but she saw what the second she looked up. Mr. Baggs, now just a simple man shape again, was walking out the front door completely on fire. Edith glared at him and pushed herself to her feet. She wiped her cheeks, leaving broad black smears on her hands and face. She hollered a few choice curses at the burning man and he looked at her with blind eyes, turning in her direction with a hand in the air. Edith grabbed a stick off the ground and brained him with it, scattering what looked to be a great bucket full of chimney dust across the ground. Something awful and burning grabbed her from behind and she screamed and fought it off. Edith turned to see another of the Mr. Bags copies, blind and burning, trying to awkwardly grab her and hold on. It stopped mid-swipe and stiffly offered its hand to the headless one she'd left laying on the ground. It accepted, and in an ugly, jerking motion, they raised each other up and mashed their bodies together, becoming one. Edith looked at her stick, but it had burned away completely. She pointed at them. You stay right there, she hissed. I'm getting a rock. More of the Mr. Bags copies fell off the stunted, broken awning just then, almost boxing her in. Edith had to twist, stumble, and nearly fall to avoid getting caught up with them. She found a good-sized rock in that moment, but when she turned around, Mr. Bags had almost completely reformed himself. The fire covering his body burned so hot she could see the ground blackening and bubbling. We have yet to conclude our business, Miss Harlow, he sputtered. They were both in bad shape, it seemed, though she was much worse off. She hit him with the rock anyway, scraping off the featureless face and revealing the eyes and zipper mouth from earlier. Then she fell down, literally too exhausted to do anything but collapse. Disappointing, Mr. Baggs said. How oh, I despise rude women. He reached down to her, clearly intent on wrapping his burning hand around her mouth and smothering her. She spit at him, watching this last attempt burn away into pointless steam. Then his burning hand was over her face, and the fire became terribly terribly bright almost as bright as the sun 
as bright as the sun, in fact. Mr. Bag shouted and reeled back from Edith. She coughed and sat up, watching with wonder as the burning man tripped and rolled madly around on the ground. Little bits of untended scrub grass caught fire and smoked wherever he passed. We had a deal, he screamed, though not at Edith. Had, was all the dark said. Edith turned to see her sitting in a gloomy pile amongst the garden's broken nightshades. The body of a great, gray wolf spread across her lap. Edith almost cried when she saw Brooke take a heavy, whining breath. You hurt my wolf. Edith saw her shotgun laying in a pocket of shadow behind a rock and pulled it free, using the barrels to push herself to her feet. Mr. Baggs was burning normally now and trying to slap away the flames on his arms and shoulders. As she watched, he turned and belched out a thick, oily wad of carpet that he had to pull inch by inch the rest of the way. Foulness dripped off him in steaming pools, showing the pallid skin beneath. Oh, God, he said to himself, finally looking at Edith. He wiped the grime from his chin with a smoldering shirt sleeve and straightened, offering her a filthy hand. Gray, wavering eyes turned up in a worried smile. Well then, no need to be rude. Ernest bags at your... She shot him, and this time it took. Buckshot bent him at the waist and dropped him to his knees and then his side. Edith kicked him onto his back and he offered no resistance. I need to load this thing again, she asked him in a steady voice. He smiled at her, blood on his lips and teeth, and gave a curt shake of his head. She kept the old scatter gun trained on him as he reached into his jacket pocket and pulled free an old tin-type postcard showing a picture of a young boy on a horse. He held the ancient thing in front of his eyes, now perfectly human, and then pressed his bloody thumb against the back. Then Mr. Baggs held the postcard straight up into the air and, after watching it flutter in the rainless squalls for a long moment, let it fly away on the breeze. Edith watched this ritual with all due shock and confusion, turning to Mr. Baggs one last time before he died. He gave her a wink, blood bubbling onto his chin as he spoke. Payment on delivery, he said. I hope you have a wonderful spring. Then his fingers, still raised, turned to dust. His arm followed and then the rest of him, clothes and all. When this spectacle was done, All that remained of him was a long, steel zipper that rusted to nothing. Edith took a breath, looked up at the sky, and fell. Chances are you might never take a ride on Cabin Creek Road in West Virginia, headed out of Charleston or on the way back into there from the south at the right time of year to see the trailhead leading into Staple Brick Holler. In summer, it's so covered over in green you won't be able to make heads or tails of it. In winter, 
It's so thick with snow and ice, you'd be better off just breaking your leg at home to save yourself the trip. Come spring, the wash and flood is so bad it makes every step in or out an uphill battle, if not outright impossible. But if you find yourself on that lonely, two-lane stretch of gravelly asphalt in the heart of fall, just when all the leaves turn and set the hills and valleys on fire, drive until you see a stack of three round stones on an old rock wall. Set yourself on that wall a minute and watch the woods. Be silent. Take it all in. And the path will be right there. It leads up an old dirt trail to a clearing full of meadow grass and rows of corn and tomatoes. You'll feel eyes on you as you walk. But if you're respectful, they'll let you leave footprints, take memories, and be on your way. Hard looking will show you the outlines of an old foundation beyond the garden, where if you kneel you can still smell the heat of what burned that place to the ground. Beyond this is a small graveyard where lie the bones of a noble wolf and his many, many children. Further still is the trapdoor to a root cellar, which will always be surrounded with hundreds of tiny footprints, some even from shoes. At the far back of Staple Brick Holler, which some locals still call Crack Scatter, is a worn stone hut with no door and no windows, though you can see where they once were. And at the base of this is a tablet which reads, No old woman can live forever, but she can damn sure try. And she should. The End for listening to The Tortures of Edith Harlow. What did you think? Have you ever lost somebody close to you? And how did you keep moving on after? Where did that card that Mr. Baggs released into the sky go? Will that be answered next season? Hop into the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club Discord to talk with other fans and share your answers, questions about the show, and more. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search for Westside Fairy Tales and that'll get you there. If you enjoyed this story, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation at our website, westsidefairytales.com. Think of it like purchasing this story after the fact. Subscribers at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales get early access to episodes, copies of stories, merch, and more at different tiers. Head to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales now to see if there's a support tier that's right for you. Next time on the West Side Fairy Tales, we begin our story, Sin Carriers, an epic Western horror adventure that will quite possibly make or break this podcast. Set at the turn of the 20th century, this tale spans multiple states, a slew of new and some returning 
characters, and answers questions raised in every season so far. When a crew of misfits take emergency jobs as security guards on a train headed inland from the West Coast, they will discover greater terrors in the American wastes than they ever thought possible. But the worst monsters, they'll soon learn, are running along with them. Join Sue, a surly renegade with a knack for bloodshed, Mildover Kane, a priest carrying a cruciform scar on his cheek, Ducky, a runaway thief, Moira, the ambitious daughter of a wealthy family, Elam, a young Native American accountant, Vincent Vicky Melanese, a salesman for the massive Blackwell Corporation, and Gato, a sly, secretive mercenary with lightning-fast hands as they brave murderous Pinkertons, each other, and the horrors lurking throughout the American countryside. I hope you'll join us in 2022 for our story, Sin Carriers. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021, WSF Productions, LLC.
Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused, Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Dark Fiction Podcast, due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.